Hello, you are listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast, and this is episode number 41. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and today I'm talking about life on the Buddhist path. Today, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a Buddhist, uh, especially in the secular sense. You know, what is life on the Buddhist path? As a listener, you might be uh, someone who's interested in deepening your mindfulness practice. You know, is there a process by which one becomes a Buddhist? And what does that even mean? You know, how does this apply uh, to a secular Buddhist path? Um, So if that's you, a listener who wants to take that next step, this podcast episode will discuss a little bit about what life on the Buddhist path entails. In most Buddhist traditions, there is a process by which one kind of becomes an adherent to this path or this way of life. Um, So I want to address that a little bit, specifically because I've recently gone through this on my own. You know, I've been studying and teaching Buddhism for many years now, but I recently graduated just this weekend I've been doing a ministry program with a Japanese school of Buddhism that um, was based out of Chicago, and now it's in California, and they they have like an American secularized style of um, Buddhism that kind of infuses several different traditions, and that's where I've been studying for years now. So this graduation ceremony is what allows me to officially be, uh, I guess you could say, a, a Buddhist minister now, which would allow me to officiate at weddings or funerals or, you know, any of the ritualistic aspects of of Buddhism. And I find this pretty fascinating at the intersection of being, you know, approaching Buddhism from a secular lens. Because Buddhism itself is already so secular in nature. It's a non-theistic tradition. And yet there are rituals and aspects of it that can feel um, quite religious. So I wanted to address that a little bit with with regards to this topic of, you know, what is life like on this Buddhist path, on the secular Buddhist path? So, and, and remember, as I mentioned with every podcast, you know, you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You just use it to be a better whatever you already are. Um, but for some people, their spiritual path that they're interested in is uh, the Buddhist path, the secular Buddhist path. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. So in in typical traditions with the typical uh, schools of Buddhism, you know, the the process by which one would become a Buddhist, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here when I say that, is that you take refuge. It's called taking refuge, and you take refuge in three things. You know, you take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. So I want to explain that a little bit. But first of all, let's just look at this word refuge for a second, because refuge is like... Um, you know, safety or com- comfort or another word that I think does a good a good job of explaining this idea of refuge is anchoring ourselves, an anchor. And what we're anchoring ourselves to are our values. And I think this is an important thing because in the Buddhist tradition, it's values that we're trying to anchor to, not necessarily beliefs. Buddhism is, is not a dogmatic um religion or spiritual path, or at least, you know, shouldn't be. So there's not, you know, to to take refuge in the Buddha, for example, what that means, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, the, the podcast on enlightenment, that the word Buddha means awakened one. So what we're taking refuge in is in, in this idea of wisdom into the possibility, you know, I anchor myself to the possibility of being awake, of being awakened myself. Uh, for me, this means Essentially, I value wisdom. Wisdom is one of my values. I anchor myself to the wisdom that others have taught, people like the Buddha and people who continue to teach even to this day. So wise individuals who have found freedom amid suffering, um, that's what I value. The wisdom is a value that I want to anchor myself to. So when I take refuge, you know, to say I take refuge in the Buddha, that's what that means, that the Wisdom is a value. I want to anchor myself to it. And this anchor reminds me that waking up is a very real possibility, that I can have freedom from my habitual reactivity, which can be the source of so much of my suffering. So taking refuge, or is it's like anchoring ourselves in wisdom. That's how I would describe that uh, 
first step. Taking refuge in the Buddha is anchoring myself in wisdom. Uh, step two, you know, you say I take refuge in the Dharma. And the Dharma are the teaching. It's the teachings of the Buddha. So to me, essentially, this means perspective. The teachings give us a perspective uh, on life, on reality that we didn't have before. So I anchor myself to the teachings that will help me to understand the nature of suffering, the nature of impermanence, the things always change, the nature of interdependence, that uh, everything depends on everything else. You know, that a flower isn't just a flower. A flower is also interdependent with the sun and the uh, clouds and everything else. I've talked about that. Um, so I strive to see reality through these lenses, these lenses of impermanence and interdependence. And this is the anchor, you know, the anchor of perspective that reminds me that I need to take a look at the way that I'm seeing things. In fact, it reminds me of how important my perspective is perhaps more so than what it is I'm seeing is the recognition of how I'm seeing things. It's on me. So it's like turning inward, you know, looking at that mirror. So taking refuge in the Dharma is that I'm anchoring myself in the teachings about impermanence and interdependence. This It's a perspective shift. And then the third one is you take refuge in the Sangha. And what that means, you know, it's friendship and support. I anchor myself to the companionship and the support that I need in order to be a better whatever I already am. And, um, you know, there's there's a, a phrase in the Dhammapada that says, if you find a wise person who points out your faults and corrects you, you should follow that person um, as a sage, as you would a revealer of treasures. I really like that sentiment. And I think all of you listening to this can identify with that to have a friend, someone that you know, maybe you know them in person, maybe you don't, but someone that you can rely on who just kind of tells you as it is, not in a mean way, but, you know, in a genuine way, they they help you or they um, inspire you to be a better version of who you are. We all have someone like that. And that's what this whole part of the refuge is, is that you know, when I want to be with other like-minded individuals who are aspiring to be better versions of themselves, that's my community. And I'm going to take refuge in that. I'm going to anchor myself in, you know, in this uh, community of people who inspire me to be better version, a better version of what I already am. So those are the three refuges. And when, when one, the, essentially what it takes to become a Buddhist in most schools is you just say those three things. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, and I take refuge in the Sangha. But I wanted to explain that because I think more important than saying it is recognizing what does it mean? You know, you don't have to say it. It's just something in your mind that you recognize. I'm going to anchor myself, uh, take refuge in wisdom. I'm going to take refuge in knowledge, learning, understanding, perspective. And I'm going to take refuge in friendship and support not just for the support that I need, but my willingness to be a support to the others who are also on this path. And that's it. There's really nothing else to it. It's not, you know, it's not explained this way. It almost doesn't even seem like it's a religious thing at all. It almost seems like, well, that's common sense. Who wouldn't want to be on that path? And that's how I view it. It's like, well, yeah, I think a lot of people are on this path without, without even realizing that they're on this path. They already uh, value the knowledge and wisdom that comes from people who are who who are wise, you know, in not just religiously or spiritually, but you know, it could be uh, people who contribute to wisdom in our world, uh, people who spread those teachings, people who um, I think you get the point. So that's really what it means. Uh, I anchor myself in wisdom. I anchor myself in perspective and I anchor myself in friendship and support. To me, that's essentially what it means to be a, a Buddhist, especially a secular Buddhist. Uh, those are the three things. Now, very common in Buddhism is the, the teaching of the Eightfold Path. And what that means, these are the kind of the eight areas in your life that once you decide this is the path I want to be on, the path that leads to more wisdom and more compassion, well, now what? What are the, you know, what should I focus on? And that's where the rest of this conversation will kind of go, because the Eightfold Path is the traditional path that a Buddhist, um, so 
I, I kind of I'm reluctant to even say a Buddhist, but a, someone who's aspiring to wake up, maybe we'll call it that, someone who's aspiring to be a better whatever they already are, these eight areas are important areas in your life that you would be able to focus on and work with to accomplish that, accomplish being a better whatever you already are. So let's talk about those eight areas. So these, uh, the Eightfold Path um, consists of these eight areas, like I mentioned, and they are understanding, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And these are referred to as the Eightfold Path. This is why the symbol of Buddhism is a wheel with eight spokes. This is what it's referring to. But it's important to understand that this isn't a moral code to be followed. It's not a, um, you know, it's it's a guide. It's meant to be a guide for specific areas in my life where I can experience and discover the nature of reality for me, for my from my perspective. And Thich Nhat Hanh tells a story um, in his book, Old Path, White Clouds, where the Buddha says, you know, I, I need to state very clearly that my teaching is a method to experience reality, but it's not reality itself, just in the same way that a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon itself. So the Eightfold Path is kind of to be seen like that. It's a guide. Um, so consider that that standpoint. Um, and then it's common that you can take these eight areas and you can divide those even further into three groups. You know, the moral discipline group, which would be wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Uh, some traditions um, will will translate this as right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, I like to use wise, another word that um, also translates well for the original Pali word that's used uh, is um, skillful. You could do skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood. Um Okay, I got sidetracked for a second. So group one was the moral discipline group. Group two is the concentration group. These are wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Uh, and then there's the wisdom group, which is wise view and wise intention. Um, another way to kind of think of these three categories is that, you know, three of these are training me to have a higher moral discipline. Um the other group, these are trainings in the higher form of consciousness, a higher state of consciousness. And then the third group is a higher, a training in higher wisdom, increased wisdom. Um, so let's just go through these one at a time. So the first one, and in my opinion, the the most important one in this group of higher wisdom is wise understanding or wise view. Sometimes these are used interchangeably. Um, understanding or view is essentially the recognition that the way I see something may not be the way it actually is. It's recognizing that it's just the way that I see it. That's, I can't get past that. You know, my reality is influenced by the way that I perceive things. So this is kind of like walking into a barn at night and there's a coiled hose and I think it's a snake. So in that moment, it doesn't matter what it is. The only thing that matters is what I think it is, right? All of my actions, everything I'm going to do from that moment on is governed entirely by my perspective. And this is why it's so important to have a wise view or a wise understanding of reality because reality may not be what I think it is. So, um, you know, if I were to act immediately as if it was a snake, I jump or I do whatever it is I'm going to do, I'm acting at this point not based on reality, but based on my perception of reality. And that's why it's so important to at least recognize or distinguish that there are two realities. There's what is, and then there's my story around what is. And everything that I do in life is revolving around the story that I've created around reality. But that's not the same thing as reality itself. So this is why this first one is so important. You know, we want to be wise about our understanding or our view of reality. Uh, you know, wisdom, let's, if we were to turn on that light in the barn, so to speak, suddenly I realize, oh, that wasn't a snake. That was actually just a hose. Well, now my entire set of actions from that moment forward are also changing and shifting based on a new understanding of reality that's different from the understanding of reality that I had a few minutes ago when it was a you know, a, a misunderstood 
way of perceiving reality. So this whole first spoke of the wheel, essentially, it's about continually seeking after wisdom to help us to learn to see the world the way that it really is. Now, um, you could kind of sum this up in, in, in the two components of, of impermanence and interdependence. Those are the two most common ways that we misinterpret reality. We think we think that there things are independent, right? There's this and there's that. This doesn't rely on that. This is kind of twisting that and realizing, wait, this is because of that. So I cannot separate those. Um, again, this is the exercise with the flower. You can't separate the flower from the bees or the flower from the sun or the flower from the clouds and the rain and the soil. You know, you start to realize, wow, everything is interdependent. That will start to fundamentally shift one of my misperceptions about reality, which is before that I only saw things as things. There's this and there's that, and they're all separate. So that starts to shift. And then the other uh, huge area where that shifts is in terms of impermanence, where you know we tend to see things as permanent. Um, and the, our understanding with a change of, in perspective is we realize, well, it's nothing's permanent. Everything's always changing. So I can't isolate something and make it a permanent thing because there, there's no permanence there. Um, we do that with people, right? We believe someone is a certain way or circumstances may seem to be a certain way. They seem, you know, really negative. Later we discover they weren't what we thought they were. This is the whole parable of the horse and who knows what is good and what is bad, right? That's totally in terms of impermanence. Um, so those two things really start to shift the way that we understand, um, our understanding or view of reality. So that's that first spoke, wise understanding, wise view. And we work with that through looking at uh, impermanence and interdependence. So the reason I think that's the most important one is because once we've understood the nature of reality is that it's impermanent and interdependent, it starts to change the way that we view reality. And with this wise view, all of the other spokes become easier to understand or to implement or to practice. So with that, let's look at the second spoke of the wheel, which is wise intent. Uh, Intent is everything on the Buddhist path. Because a lot of the things that we do in life, we're not really aware of why we're doing them. And when it comes to trying to reduce suffering, we need to be aware of the intention that we have with regards to the things that we're saying or doing. You know, when our intentions stem from anger or hatred, they're more likely to cause harm than if the th- you know than if they're stemming from a place of of happiness or gratitude. Um, and because we know that our tendency is to be reactive, it can be very difficult to be mindful of the intent behind our words and actions because sometimes we're just reacting. There's no thought to the intent. So it takes practice to learn to become aware of our intentions. You know, in some traditions, I remember you, you can model your behavior after someone as an ideal. You know, I remember the, the, the bracelets as, as a child, you know, that remind you, what would Jesus do? Or, you know, they have, what would Buddha do? Um, the goal here is to become very familiar with the answer to the question, what would I do? You know, what would I do? That's really all that matters in the end, isn't it? Why do I say the things that I say? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Um, intention is the way that we understand that. You, you, you practice by asking yourself, why? As you're reacting to things, why am I, why am I so angry right now? Uh, why am I feeling this way? Why am I experiencing this emo- emotion? You know, if I'm, you can do this with the positive and negative, because if, if I'm being really kind to someone, I can ask, why? Why am I being kind? Um, you may discover, oh, I'm trying to be nice to them so that they'll lend me money. Well, now that I understand that intent, that's not a, a noble action, right? Or that's not a, you know, I, I'm my intent may reveal to me that I'm increasing uh, suffering and not reducing suffering, even if I was doing uh, on the surface what seems like a nice gesture. You know, maybe if I genuinely care about a person, um, then maybe my intent, you know, is different. So you want to understand your intent. You want to be uh, keenly aware of your intentions. And 
you know, if, if, if the whole point of this is that we're trying to become liberated or free from our habitual reactivity, then it's vitally important to understand our intentions or to at least be aware of our intentions. You know, that's how you can decide if you need to create new intentions or perhaps let go of old intentions. Um, or, you know, it's when you understand your intent that you can be more at peace with why you do the things that you do, because you know it's not out of a, a reactive habit that you may not be aware of. So that's where intent comes in, and, and, and intent will go um, will play a role with everything else from here moving forward. For example, um, so those are the two spokes under wisdom, right? The next spokes, the next uh, three spokes are kind of uh, in this genre of moral discipline. And you'll see how intent comes into play here because the first one is wise speech. And when we're talking about communication, speech, it's not just talking. It's the way we communicate with ourselves and with others um, because it's communication is an essential part of creating a peaceful and harmonious life, both for ourselves and others, because we're social creatures. And communication is perhaps the most important part of of our human relations. So wise speech is learning to communicate with others in a way that minimizes harm or that doesn't cause harm. And like I said, this isn't just speech. This is writing, texting, emailing, Facebooking, whatever form of communication you've got going on. Because lying, gossiping, insulting, you know, that's not wise speech. It's, um, those I think are kind of obvious. They they don't minimize suffering. But on the flip side of that, it's important to understand that neither are compliments that you don't mean. That's that's also not wise speech. Or promises you don't intend to keep, that would also not be wise speech. Um, sucking up to someone that you're trying to impress because you're trying to get something out of them. You know, those would be examples of um, unwise or unskillful speech. And this is where intent comes into play because I may do that without knowing that that's what I'm doing. But once I, I have a thorough understanding of my intent, now I can catch, oh, that's that's actually not very effective speech. It may be causing more harm, even though I'm saying something nice to someone, because I know the intent behind it. So wise speech considers why you, something, why you say something uh, on equal grounds as what it is that you say. You know, It's not just what you say, it's why are you saying what you're saying. Um, why speech does not always have to be pleasant. It's not about just being nice. You know, it doesn't have to, it's not about withholding ideas or opinions because you don't want someone to disagree with you or to feel upset because you have a different view from them. The important part here is that it's always sincere. It's always genuine. Um, you know, it's it's like the difference between constructive criticism and destructive criticism. And we, I think we all know what that's like. We all know the difference between the two. Receiving criticism from someone isn't a problem, but sometimes it's the intent behind it that bothers us. Um, so are we trying to cause harm, cause pain, or are we trying to uh, be genuine and authentic in expressing something? Um, that's kind of the difference here with um, wise speech. Uh, so the next one is wise action. And this is another spoke here. Wise action is essentially uh, conduct um, that's proper and necessary for whatever situation you're in. For example, here's another scenario with, with wise action correlated to intent and correlated to speech. If you were, you know, I imagine during the Second World War when there were families that were hiding um, Jews in their home, you know, if the, the Nazis come knocking like, hey, do you have... Are you hiding, you know, do you know where the neighbors went? You know, it would be wise speech to say, no, I don't know where they are, even though that's a lie, right? A wise action could be hiding them in your house, even you, even though, you know, um, maybe that was uh, against the law if they had made a law about that or whatever. Um, but you get the idea of what I'm saying here. Wise action um, sometimes includes the sense of doing the right thing in a moral sense, uh, so, um, you know, it closely resembles the guideline for behaving appropriately according to the situation and the context. Again, this is why it's going to be super important to understand what is my intent 
And what is my view? How do I, you know, how do I view the world? Because someone without wise or, or skillful view or understanding of reality may think that they're they're living according to wise action when they're not. What they're doing actually isn't wise. So you can see that, right? So the problem with we don't want this to be like a set moral code because the problem with that is that morals change and they evolve over time based on time and based on place, society, where you live. So if we just adhere to the moral code of some place and time, that may not be the wisest form of action for our specific time and our specific place. This is an expression that says uh, morality is doing what's right regardless of what you're told. Obedience is doing what you're told regardless of what's right. Uh, to me, that sums up this idea of wise action. We want to do what's right um, more than just do what we're told. That's the, the two different things. So wise understanding, wise thinking, wise speech, um, you know, the, all the previous ones we've talked about will kind of give rise to wise action. Your, where your wisdom leads you to behave fittingly in any scenario that you might be in. So wise action is not a set of rules to be followed, you know, to the letter. That's why uh, in Buddhism, there's not like the Ten Commandments or there's not the, there's nothing like that because there's just wise action. What is wise action? Well, guess what? You have to figure that out. It's not appropriate for, for me to say, you know, what might be wise action for me may not be wise action for you because it depends on, on place and time as well. Right. Um, and as we know from the story of the parable of the horse, who knows what is good and what is bad, we know that right and wrong are often subjective, uh, especially in different societies and different time periods. So what may be acceptable in one society or one time in history is often unacceptable in another time in another place. So, you know, that I imagine the those times when people finally figure it out and realize, you know, like, oh, slavery isn't okay. You know, maybe it was... It seemed like it was for a long time, but then consciousness elevates, awareness elevates, new perspectives shift. And that's why this is, you know, you're always working with this. It's not a static thing. Suddenly somebody somewhere realized, hey, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. This is not wise action. Um, If it were stagnant, if it were a static thing, a set of rules, that gets really complicated because life isn't stagnant. Life isn't um, fixed. Life is continually changing and evolving. Therefore, wise action should not be an absolute thing. It shouldn't be a set moral code, like a set of commandments. You're going to want to, um, life on this path entails, um, you know, wise action that'll, that will arise naturally out of having wise understanding or wise view, wise speech, wise intent. So I hope that makes sense how those start to correlate. So the next one we'll look at is wise livelihood. And this is the one that kind of addresses, you know, what we do for a living. How do we make a living? How do we interact with others while on the job? Um, Because we need to determine for ourselves if what we do for a living is causing more harm or more good for ourselves and others. And again, this is a very personal thing that arises naturally out of having a wise view and a wise intent. If I understand my intent and I understand the way that I perceive the world, it starts to give me the ability to decide is what I'm doing, um, you know, is this the type of job or career um, that I want to have where I feel like it's improving? Am I helping myself and others to be better whatever they already are or or am I not, you know? Um, so some, some, some things are obvious, right? Like being a a hired hitman, well, it's very obvious that that would not be wise livelihood because you're causing more harm than you are good for yourselves and for yourself and others. Um, it does require that balance between what's good for you and what's good for others or for the environment, or, you know, you can start to see how complex this can become. But there's a, another aspect to all this. It also includes how we interact with the people that we work with customers, coworkers, things like that. Um, so again, you know, if I'm embezzling funds from my employer, stealing money, stealing food from the fridge at work, like those are examples of unwise livelihood. Um, even someone who's uh, in trying to do good, like a doctor, 
you know, they may be doing good, but they're at the same time causing harm because maybe they're taking bribes from a pharmaceutical company to prescribe a certain type of medicine over another another one, knowing that this one wouldn't be as effective as the other one, but I get paid more if I prescribe this one. You know, so there is another example of wise livelihood. And that's also another example of where intent is really important. You know, I need to understand why am I doing this? Is it just for the money? What is the intent behind the action, uh, behind the livelihood? But at the end of all of this, ultimately, it's just up to us to make the judgment call regarding the way that we make a living. You make your living. You know you know why you do it. And it's a good idea to incorporate wise intent in this process. You know, maybe you can ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, I've had, I've had to do this in my own life. I remember one specific job where I was really uncomfortable with the type of work that I did because we sold um, supplements and it was kind of a deceptive form of marketing where uh, some of you may be familiar with this tactic where you sign up for a free trial of these pills and then um, and you think it's free, but a month later they start billing you and they make it really difficult for you to cancel that automated bill. Um, I worked for a company that did that and I had to ask myself, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I, am I comfortable with this? I, I was always uncomfortable knowing people were trying really hard to figure out how to cancel these ongoing bills. And it was kind of a widespread practice at the time. But at the end of the day, I decided that wasn't a career I wanted to be in. It wasn't a type of work I wanted to be involved with because I felt that for me personally, I was uncomfortable with knowing that knowing the the harm that it was causing on others, the inconvenience it was causing on others to have to put up with with the job that I was performing. Um, so I ended up leaving that job. I found another job where I didn't have conflicting feelings around my livelihood. Uh, but that's the idea behind wise livelihood. So with those, that kind of deals with the the training and higher moral discipline with speech, action, and livelihood. Again, you see how how important it is that those are correlated with an understanding of what my intent is, wise intent. So that leads us to the last three spokes of the wheel. These are the training in higher consciousness or higher awareness. And you can start to see how they all start to feed on each other, right? Because the more, you know, the better I am at having effort, that effort may be what um, helps me to understand my intent. And that intent helps me to be introspective and understand that maybe what I'm doing for work isn't what I want to do for work. Uh, so you, you can start to see how they they rely on each other. So the next one is wise effort. And this is essentially what it takes to put into practice all the other parts of the path. This is the effort on on our part if we want to experience any kind of positive change in our lives. It's going to require effort, you know, whether it's to learn a new skill. Uh, I want to learn music, for example. I've got to learn to read music or sports. It takes a lot of practicing uh, business skills. I might have to go to school. Whatever it is I'm trying to do, there's effort required to do it. We can usually look at ourselves and recognize if we're going to give the proper amount of effort or not, you know, we we can decide that before we go into something. Without effort, there's usually very little or no progress. So our effort affects everything that we do in the world. Um, and you, you'll, you know this, if you've ever tried to accomplish any kind of a goal and you failed, for example, a common one for a lot of us around New Year's is we decide we're going to start going to the gym and we're going to get in shape. And the reason that we don't, that a lot of us don't, and I, I put myself in there because this happens over and over, um, what I realized is it was a lack of effort. It's not, I mean, what else could it be, right? Um, effort is what plays a part in that. Um, for me, I've tried to learn to play the guitar for almost 10 years, and I've never really done a good job with it because it's the effort that had to be put in to do it. That's where I struggle um, so the key to accomplishing a goal, um, is directly connected to the effort that you put into what it takes to accomplish it. And I know that I've put time and effort into other things that I wanted to do, and that worked out really well for me. Um, it took a lot of effort to start putting this podcast together. That hasn't been a big problem. Um, so you can start to see where and where and how much effort are you putting into the things that really matter in your life. 
This is especially important when you're looking at relationships, uh, jobs, hobbies, lots of other things, but relationships. You know, do you do you put the effort in required to maintain the relationship with your loved one or with your spouse or significant other, with parents, with siblings? Um, you know, wise effort is about prioritizing our effort and all of the things that we do because there are a lot of things that we want to do in life and we need to prioritize and decide where does the effort go? Where am I going to dedicate time to make sure uh, that I accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. Now with Buddhism, you know, we, we talk about this, that what we're trying to become is better, whatever we already are. We're trying to be improve and be better at how we live to be less reactive. Well, to be less reactive, isn't going to happen. Cause I just said, okay, I don't want to be reactive anymore. It doesn't work that way. Um, I'm in fact, I'm going to be reactive. And one of the first things I'll be reactive to is, um, reactive to the fact that I can't not be reactive. You know, now I, now I'm mad on two la- layers or levels because I don't want to be reactive anymore. So now when I am reactive, now I'm mad that I got reactive because I already know that I don't want to be reactive. So you can see, um, you know, without effort, there's, there's no form of awakening or enlightenment or liberation from habitual reactivity. It doesn't happen without effort. So it's the effort that um, this specific spoke is relying on, well, am I going to put time into meditating? Am I going to put put time into reading more books to understand these concepts? Am I going to put the effort it requires to, you know, seek uh, podcast episodes that continually um, push me towards being a better whatever I already am? You, you know, that's effort. That's where effort comes in. Um, so after effort, we've got mindfulness. Um, and again, you see all of these start layering on each other. So wise mindfulness is about being aware. It's about paying attention. You know, being mindful helps, helps us to stay anchored in the present moment. Uh, cause typically we're not in the present moment, right? We're either regretting something in the past, anxious about something in the future. Um, but to be mindful, it's a uh, practice because it does indeed require practice, which is going to require effort uh, to be more mindful. And we've all experienced the, I, you know, the, the, the uh, scenario of driving somewhere only, only to realize that you weren't really paying attention. You finally get there and you don't realize how you got there or you miss a turn, right? You're driving on the freeway, you're on the phone and you realize, Oh crap, that was my exit. Um, that idea of being zoned out or distracted we do this a lot in a lot of areas of life. It's not just while we're driving. That's an area where we notice it, but that's not the only time it happens. So when we're not mindful, we're not aware, we're missing things that might be happening right in front of our eyes. You know, I think of this a lot as a parent, mindless parenting. You know, I don't want to look back and think, oh man, I missed that phase with my kids when they were this age or that age or doing this or doing that. Not because... um because of intent or because of effort, it might have entirely to do with the fact that I wasn't mindful. I just wasn't aware. Um, and I think this becomes really helpful when we think about this in the context of time, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly stuck in the past or the future, like I said, so that makes it really difficult to be mindful of what's happening in the present. So, um, Wise mindfulness is about learning to anchor ourselves in the present moment. And it it connects very closely with um, meditation, you know, with effort. Um, because we want to be mindful. We, we want to be aware of the things that we're not even aware that we're not aware of. But again, that doesn't happen just because it's like, okay, I want to be mindful. Well, that that's great and sentiment, but what am I going to do about that? So that's how mindfulness correlates with all these others. Which leads us to the last spoke of this wheel. This is concentration. And this is the practice of focusing the mind on one thing, right? You know, if I want to be aware, it's going to require, if I want to be mindful or aware, it's going to be require the ability to at least concentrate, you know, to concentrate on what it is I'm trying to do in that specific moment. And this is where meditation comes in. This is the great tool that we use to practice concentration. So... I know we typically think of meditation as someone sitting with their legs crossed on the floor and their eyes closed. 
Um, but it, it can be so much more than that. It can be um, the concentration that we put into washing the dishes when we're washing the dishes or when we're walking, we're just walking, when we're um, doing anything. Uh, a really common one that I notice in my own life is when I'm eating, a lot of times I'm not really eating. I'm eating and I'm looking at my phone. I'm checking up what's on Facebook. I'm reading the news, checking emails. And then you're done eating. And it, you know, if someone were to ask me detailed questions about my meal, I wouldn't really know. Um, this is a lack of my ability to concentrate. So uh, concentration is when we do something that's just, we're, when we're doing something, we're just doing that thing. And there's a Zen story about this with, you know, an enlightened person, when they eat, they eat, and when they walk, they walk. And someone will say, well, yeah, anyone can do that. But no, the difference is when you're awake, you know, someone who's awakened, when they walk, they just walk. They're just walking because that's what they're doing. When they're eating, they're just eating. Um, so I think that's when we can all kind of correlate to our own eating habits. I don't know about you, but anytime I go somewhere to eat, if I look around, more than half, usually three-fourths of the people there are just on their phone. You know, when was the last time that you actually ate and just ate? Like, that's that was your whole goal. I'm only eating, and I'm concentrating on what I'm eating. I'm paying attention to what this tastes like. What does this feel like in my mouth? Uh, what does, you know, all the experiences of eating. Um Alan Watts says you can make any human activity into meditation by simply being completely with it and doing it just to do it. So I would challenge you to try next time you go eat somewhere, try eating meditation where you're just eating and that's all you're doing. You're not doing anything else. Um, so that's concentration. And the opposite of concentration would be distraction. I think that's, you know, just think about distraction as the opposite because we all know what that's like. We live in a society and in within a culture that's constantly bombarded with opportunities for distraction, whether it's the chime on your phone or the billboard on the street or the commercials, what the TV, text, email, whatever it is. You know, we've got thousands of distractions that are all competing for our attention virtually anywhere you look at any given time of the day. And distraction prevents us from seeing life as it really is. No, because we don't know. We're seeing all kinds of other things. So distraction prevents us from understanding the truth about ourselves and others. You know, this is what we're trying to accomplish with wise concentration is to have the skill and the ability to be with something for a moment. You know, to concentrate on, you know, when an emotion arises for me and I'm sitting here and I'm upset, am I trying to distract myself out of it? Like, ah, don't be upset. Turn on the TV. You know, it's like that's a distraction. And and distractions can be fine, but here's what I'll never know if, if I constantly react to my emotions in a way like that. I'll never be able to sit with an emotion and say, why am I upset? I'm sitting here and I'm upset. Why? You know, imagine being able to sit with your emotion, to concentrate on it. You may gain insight out of that. That's the whole purpose of this with concentration. You know, what can I discover that I didn't know that I didn't know? So those are the eight um, spokes of the wheel, the eightfold path. You know, if you were to enter this and think, this is a way of life I want to live. I want to practice Buddhism as a philosophical way of living. What does that entail? It's essentially this, these eight areas. You know, these eight areas that you're going to strive to be more aware of or to to be skillful with in your life. And they are understanding or view, you know, how do I view the world? How do I understand reality? Am I skillful in the way that I understand what's unfolding right now in front of me? Or am I not skillful with that? Next is intention. Do I understand my intentions? And then it goes into speech, action, and livelihood. And from there, we've got effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So those are the eight areas that make up the eightfold path. And as I mentioned, this is a path that that you're constantly working on, right? It's not like uh, a linear thing that you think, um, you know, I've got to master this before that one, you know, before that one makes sense. You're always working on all of them. Uh, sometimes you may be working a little more heavily on one spoke versus another. There's no particular order that you need to go with. 
Although I do like to emphasize that the first spoke is the most important because with wise understanding or with wise view, the rest start to kind of arise naturally. You know, when I when I truly grasp and understand the nature of impermanence and interdependence, it changes the way that I talk to myself and others. It changes the way that I act. It changes, you know, it increases the um, the desire to be, to have more effort to be a better whatever I already am. You know, it starts to have these all these ramifications all based on on the first one, the right view or the wise view. Um, so this is a, a path. It's an ongoing practice that can bring about a new sense of awareness and perspective into everything that you do. You know, and, and this is, I, I want to emphasize again, this is why Buddhism is often referred to as a practice because it's not like you get it. You're always getting it because you're always trying. You're always practicing. You're always trying to be a better whatever you already are, but you never actually get it, right? You know, just that concept itself to be a better whatever you already are. How do you win that game? You never say, oh, I did it. Now I'm the best whatever I already was. You know, it's not about that. It's about being better. Whatever you are, now be better. And you finally get there. Well, now be better. But you never get there. So you're always practicing to be a better whatever you already are. And you accomplish that by keeping in mind these eight areas of your life that you want to focus on. You know, maybe you can write them down. I like I, I like to have a little visual representation of the eightfold path with the with the eight spokes on the wheel. And each spoke is the word written out. And it reminds me, these are eight areas that I am committed to being better at in my life. Maybe not... Maybe not even being better at, but if anything, understanding these. I want to understand these eight areas in my life because the simple act of understanding them already makes me better at them. You know, this is, uh, view this as a guideline for the specific areas where you want to focus on in your life to help you become a better you. And that's it. It's that simple. There's nothing to believe in. There's nothing, there's no set of commandments. It's not like you have to be, you know, nobody says, um, you know, you, you have to be, you have to have perfect intent. It's, it's not that it's, I just want to understand my intent. Why do I do the things that I do? It's not about saying, do this, don't do that. It's just saying, whatever it is you're doing, know yourself. Why are you doing it? Why do you do that? Because at the end of the day, it empowers you to know what would I do? What would I do? You know, that's that's what we're striving for here. That's what combats this uh, instinct to just be habitual, to just habitually react. And I don't even know why I'm reacting. So I've got these eight areas in my life that I'm committed to and dedicated to um, trying to be a better whatever I already am. And they all start with you know, that first commitment that I make to be on this path, the taking refuge, You know, the, the commitment that I've made to understand what my values are. I value wisdom. I value knowledge. I value friendship and support. And I take refuge in those three aspects of my life. I have friends and family that form the backbone of that journey that I'm on. I have books and sources that I go to to learn you know, the knowledge that I need to, to have this um, to anchor myself in these teachings that are going to help me be a better whatever I already am. And then, of course, there's um, you know, the first one that I anchor myself in all the great teachers that have come before me, um, whether it be the Buddha or Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama or um, you know any other teacher. Not They don't have to be Buddhist, but those are the ones that, that I mentioned because that's kind of the path I'm on. Um, but it's not restricted to one. You know, wisdom is not... Um, is not confined to a specific tradition. It's not like, well, wisdom is only found in Buddhism. Wisdom is found in every tradition, and it's our job to seek it. Where Whatever tradition you're in, find the wisdom. Anchor yourself to it. That's taking refuge. Now, you could be taking refuge in the Buddha, so to speak, without believing in Buddha at all or being Buddhist. You could do that the moment you anchor yourself to wisdom from whatever tradition. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, my explanation of life on the Buddhist path. You know, this is the path that I uh, have chosen. And most recently, like I mentioned last week, have kind of made this official for me as a 
as a Buddhist uh, minister, you know, I'm honored now to be able to be in a position where I can officiate at friends or people's weddings, you know, if, you know, I, I can do more with it. Um, but people have asked me, like, well, now what? Now what's going to happen? What does this mean now that you're a minister? It's like, it doesn't mean anything different. It's, this is the path that I've been on. What I just explained in this podcast is a summary of life on the Buddhist path for me. And that's the path, you know, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, and today and tomorrow, uh, but all in the context of impermanence, right? That's just what it is right now. Um, so hopefully you can get some information out of this podcast that will help you on your path um, and to, you know, to accomplish the goal of, of being more awake, being a better whatever you already are. That's really the only goal. There's nothing beyond that. So as always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, um, please share it with others, write a review, give it a rating in iTunes. Um, remember, you can always learn, you know, more if this, if you're new to these concepts, listen to the first five episodes of this podcast in order, or you can find uh, these concepts explained in in my book, Secular Buddhism, Eastern Thought for Western Minds, which is on Amazon, Kindle, iTunes, and Audible. Um, you can get more information on all that on secularbuddhism.com. But that's all I've got for now. I'm really looking forward to recording another podcast episode soon. Now I have the time that I'll be able to do this um, more often. And thanks to the support from a lot of you listeners, um, that's giving me the ability to dedicate more time and resources and effort uh, to making this a podcast that is beneficial so that every time you listen to it, you know, you gain something out of it. I want this to be something that's valuable. Um, and I'm also creating other resources um, that I'll be able to explain later in a future podcast. But that's all I've got for now. So thanks again for taking the time to listen. And until next time.